Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark and it is the weekend in January the 4th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the new year and I hope all of our subscribers enjoyed the Christmas special with our little little two minute blooper reel at the end and um, we had quite fun recording that and um, yeah it gives you a bit of an insight into what happens in the background when things don't quite work which is what was happening for this recording as well Mark wasn't it? Indeed it was Brendan and the isolated um, location that we're in um, that I'm in at the moment does mean that um, sometimes those recordings are not as smooth as we'd like. That's right, but that's all part of the the experience, isn't it? It's, it's the live recording and, and as little editing as we like, as we can do. So this is a special for the holiday season, and this is a recording that we had with a very good colleague of ours, James Harris, who's a, a definite legend, isn't he, Mark? He's a legend of the veterinary industry, and he's known worldwide. And um, the title of this um, recording I've got down as Curmudgeon, because I think that suits James. He is a bit of an old Curmudgeon, but um, we love him very much. And we have two parts to this. Um, we split it into two. We're going to have a little one-minute little um, chat in the middle of it. And this was recorded at the conference, the UPAV, the Unusual Pet Conference in Adelaide, wasn't it, Mark? And um, do you want to introduce James? And then I'll hit the um, play button and then we'll um, jump in halfway through. It's with great pleasure, Brendan, that um, I'm able to say g'day and, uh, and say that um, it, uh, James is a, uh, a US veterinarian that came to Australia. He describes in detail how um, he came to Australia in the, I think it was the early 2000s, um, set up his practice. He's got an amazing story, hasn't he, Mark, which you'll hear shortly. He's, he sort of travelled from via the UK to the USA as a vet and now he resides in, in Tasmania where he ended up and it's quite a fascinating and, and funny story about how he got to where he is in Tasmania and um, how he um, got involved with wildlife and exotic pet medicine and um, he um, was fortunate enough to be awarded a, a very great honour which is an, um, one of the Australia Awards. He chats a little bit about that as well. So we'll, I think what we might do, Marcus, we'll just jump into the recording and um, we recorded in our hotel room in Adelaide when we were there at the conference um, late in Late last year. Well, Mark, here we are with James Harris, one of the legends of veterinary science worldwide, not just here in Australia. And here we are in the Adelaide Conference in the in the bar, of course, um, of the atrium of the the atrium bar of the Intercontinental. So I'm going to quiz James a little bit about how he became a veterinarian and. You need to tell us a story, James, about are you English, are you American, or are you Australian? And how did you get to everything? How did you get to Tasmania? Well, I started in London. My first pet was a budgerigar named Joey that my father brought down from Scotland on a trip. And all the way down, he had the little budgie in a box on the front seat of the car. And every 10 seconds, he said, Joey. And the next morning, 
in his cage at home, the little bird said, Joey. So then we started teaching him a vocabulary, and he ended up with a 500-word vocabulary and had conversations with people. And if you said to him, Joey, where do you live? He'd say, 16 Litchfield Way, Hampstead Garden Suburb. <laughs> and if you said, what's the weather like out? He'd look out the window and he'd say, there's a Scotch mist today. Yes. Oh, that so can't that was... So, that can so, true. Honest to God, yes. And the, the record for language in a bird is a budgerigar with 640 words vocabulary. What color was, was um, Joey? He was green. Green. A green, little green and yellow budgie. Yeah. Now, in 1939, my father got a call one night from the war office from a friend of his that flew with him in the First World War. My father was a fighter pilot and career military. And the friend said to my father, does your wife and son, does your wife still have an American passport? And my father said, yes. He said, I've taken the liberty of booking a, cab, a cabin on the SS Manhattan, a U.S. ship leaving Southampton tomorrow morning. I would suggest your wife and son be on it. So my father turned to my mother and said, you have 20 minutes to pack a bag. I'm taking you to the boat train. And I found myself on this ship, an American flagship, with this strange woman, because I was raised by a Scots nanny. How old were you at that stage? Five years old. Okay. And a day out of Southampton, I was up on deck. My mother was seasick for five consecutive days. She never left her bunk. And I was up on deck, and I saw a periscope, and I turned to one of the ship's officers, and I said, Sir, there's a periscope out there. And he said, Yes, young man, it's a German U-boat. It's been following us since we left Southampton, but don't tell any of the other passengers. And, of course, the United States was not at war in 1939, so they didn't do anything to us. So we landed in the United States, and a year later... My father was retired out of British military and came over on an American gunboat. Um, when I was six, I went to my father and I said, I'm going to be a veterinary surgeon. And he said, well, what, the, the, the things that my father always told me was, don't start anything you're ready, that you don't, don't finish, and anything you do, do 100% of your capabilities. Very and military of very military, and that was good advice. That was good advice. And so, in the United States, my first pet was a goldfish named Clarence. <laughs> and the only day of school that I missed when I was in grade school was the day that Clarence died. That was the only day I couldn't go to school. And then, as a youngster, I went to summer camp. Now, in the United States, it's very interesting. Because the United States was an agricultural country, school vacation was July and August because that's when the children had to work on the farms. And so often children were sent to summer camp for the summer. And I came home with a musk turtle named Maggie. Mm -hmm. And I had Maggie all through my grade school and high school. And when I finally went off to the university, I donated Maggie to the Zoological Society at the, the Bronx Zoo. 
I don't think she's still alive, but she was <laughs> she she was a great pet in that she would recognize my voice when I came home and she would come up to the top of her tank and say hello to me and I would feed her little bits of liver, raw liver out of my fingers and she would take them out of my fingers. I also had an eastern, a snake. It was a, an eastern a puff adder. It wasn't a toxic snake. It was non-toxic. And I used to go to the beach and she would curl up on my chest and take sun baths with me. So, so, I mean, you know, it was... When I was a little boy in London, I used to walk down the street and strange dogs would come up to me and make friends. And also, before the Second World War, we were members of the London Zoological Society. And in those days, they had a member's day. Only members and their guests were allowed into the zoo. So at the Regent's Park Zoo, I would go in, and I had friend, and you could make friends with any animals you wanted. I had a one-year-old Bengal tiger that was my buddy, and she would roll over on her back, and I would sit on her chest and scratch her chest, and she would lick my face. There was an Alaskan timber wolf named Remus. The keepers would not go in the, ca- in the cage with him. But I would go in the cage and I'd sit on the cement step and Remus would come over to me and lay down and put his head on my lap and I would pull all the mats out of his mane. So... You wouldn't get away with those. Those experiences would all no, be ruled any, out, occupational health and safety. So, so I, I guess I've always had this animal sense and it was kind of natural that I became a veterinary surgeon. So during the Second World War, or at the end of the Second World War, I was in high school, and New York started their farm cadet program because the, the boys of, of farmers came back from the war and they didn't want to work on the farms anymore. And in the summertime, when you did all the haying and crop cropping, uh, they needed help. So I worked on dairy farms because in those days, if you wanted to apply to veterinary school, you had to have large animal experience of some sort. And I worked on dairy farms. And it was great experience. It really was. Um, I remember the first farm I worked on, he said... Well, it was in Upper New York State, and they often had electrical storms, and the electricity went out. So the first thing he said was, these are your five cows. You have to learn how to milk them by hand, because if the electricity goes out, we can't use the the electric milking machines, and we've got 55 head to milk twice a day, so you have to pitch in and learn how to milk. And I learned right away how to milk cows. Um, you, you know, you'd, you'd think that those are, those are skills you'd never need. But as I tell my students, so you graduate from veterinary school and you're going to be a dog and cat practitioner. And you end up with a partner. And the partner gets a job in Africa. And you decide to go with the, the, your partner to Africa. I said, and you want to be a veterinarian. I said, there are no dog and cat practices in Africa. I said, if, you, if he's in Zimbabwe, I said, what do veterinarians do? They improve the agricultural 
animals. So you're going to work with cows or or other stock. So uh, you know, I it's like Even in that circumstance. You were talking to me before about um, a lot of we're at the uh, the UPAV conference at the moment with unusual and exotic pets, and a lot of veterinarians want to move in that way. Um, but there are. Uh, have foundational principles that you get from those livestock species um, and they transfer to our unusual pets isn't that and, and zoo animals that's the you've got to have those bottom of the pyramid things don't you James absolutely correct um, you know in veterinary school I don't know how they are today but in anatomy we were required to do a dog and cat a chicken a horse a cow and a sheep and and that kind of covered all the anatomy uh, pretty much so james how many sorry to interrupt how many how many students were in your year at um, veterinary school or college and how many graduated and how many years was the course okay uh, in the united states it was 6 years minimum 2 years of pre veterinary 4 years of veterinary school um, the veterinary school accepted 55 per year. Um, we graduated 51. One dropped out at the end of the first year and decided they wanted to be a, he wanted to be a physician and he went to medical school. The bacteriology professor in the second year failed four. That's the way with all bacteriology that, that, that needed to be failed out and I think three of them got back in the next year and repeated that year and did okay. Um, so we graduated 51. But it was... school was it that you graduated? Michigan State University. And it was... And why did I go to Michigan State? Well... It's a good question. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because Michigan State was on the quarter system, not the semester system. And I skipped a half a year in the fourth grade. So instead of graduating in June and finishing my academic year in June, I finished in January. And Michigan State was on the quarter system so I could start university in March. So that's why I chose Michigan State. Also, it was, excuse me, mother, it was 1,200 miles from my mother, which was a safe distance. Uh, that's another story. Another story that I won't belabor anybody with. Now, James, fairly briefly, not too briefly, explain how you ended up in Tasmania, which oh, yes. is where you are now. Well, so I graduated from veterinary school in 1958, and in 1947, we got our first car after the war, and my parents took the summer off and we drove all around the United States. And when we got to San Francisco, it was cold, it was damp, it was foggy. And I turned to my parents and I said, this reminds me of London. This is where I'm going to come and go. This is where I'm going to come and work when I graduate from veterinary school. So my first job as I graduated was with the California Department of Agriculture as a poultry inspector. And in those days, rabbits were considered poultry because they didn't fit any other category. So I had 
a lot of poultry plants in San Francisco and the Northern California, and rabbit processing plants, which was kind of interesting. Um, so I, I kept, I worked for the department for a year and a half, and then my first child was born, and I left the department. And oh, I know the reason I left the department was an interesting story. There was a there was a mafia-run poultry plant that that and the first the owner's first cousin was was a senator in in the state in the California um, state legislature, and he was the chair of the agricultural committee, and they wanted to change they wanted to try to change some of the code in California. So I was called in and I was told not to inspect this one poultry plant. And I said, but, I said, but, I said, but they're in violation. Every time I go in there, I write them a ticket. They're in violation of, of whatever, you know, sanitation or whatever. They said, don't go there. Just so I said, if I can't enforce the code, I'm not going to work. So I left the department and I got a job at a small animal practice in Oakland, California, where I lived. And in 19, then I was offered a partnership in this, in, this business, in this practice. The two partners fought constantly. In fact, as an employee, I was given a 1% vote on any major issue because I was, I was the one who always broke the the, the 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 forty nine the forty nine to forty nine percent vote, so I was offered a, a, a one third partnership, and I said I don't want to practice with these crazy guys. So in nineteen sixty one, I started my own practice. And that practice, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, at some stage you uh, you were the one of the first, if not the first, vet to open a, a veterinary practice in a strip mall. Am I? Do I? That's correct. Yes, I rented a space very close to where I lived in a in a um, small in a nice community shopping centre. And I had about 750 square feet, very small, with one employee. And in those days, we had a county veterinary association, and we had a, a, a monthly dinner. And if you were going to start a practice, you announced that you were going to start the practice at your dinner. And I said... Oh, I want to make an announcement. I'm going to start a practice, and I'm going to have, I'm going to see birds, reptiles, pocket pets, exotics, as well as dogs and cats. And I'm not going to do any boarding. And I'm going to have an appointment book. And and somebody yelled across the room, "You won't last three months." <laughs> Forty years later, I sold the practice. Anyway, so. In about 1995, I was at an avian conference in Chicago, and uh, this bloke saw me across the, the lobby of the hotel and came up to me and said, because I was lecturing at the conference, he said, I like what you're doing, he said, 
you should come and lecture in Australia. His name was Ross Perry. And so the next year I flew over to Australia and I loved it. In fact, I decided I should have been evacuated to Australia in 1939, <laughs> not the United States, because I remember as a small child in the United States, I said to my mother one day, you know, I really don't like it here. I'd like to leave. And she said, you're too young. <laughs> anyway, so I kept coming back. And for, for the, for, and then in 1961, we had a conference in Hobart. And after the conference, uh, we rented a car with, by then we had made friends with other colleagues and their wives. So we rented a car with another couple and we wanted to drive all around Tasmania. And we get up to Bernie and one morning, Ken knocked on our bedroom, on our motel door and said, turn on the telly. And I said, I don't like television at night. Why would I want to watch it in the morning? And he said, you better turn it on. And we watched the planes flying into the World Trade Center. Yes. So we called United Airlines because we were due to fly back the end of that week of the week. And they said all flights back to the United States had been canceled. So we drove down back to Hobart. And Ken's wife said, I don't want to stay in another motel. I'd like a bed and breakfast. So we found a bed and breakfast. And the nice woman who owned the bed and breakfast said, look, if you're in a hurry to get back to the mainland, I'll drive you to the ferry in the morning. And we said, no, 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 no. We'd rather just stay here. Two nights, two days later, we were sitting up in the late afternoon in her lounge having a sherry. And my wife turned to me and said, you know, I love it here. If it weren't, all the children are grown. If it weren't for the dogs, I wouldn't go home. I said, yes, dear. Now, now she's the fourth wife, and I've learned how to say yes, dear. So I mean it, you know? You know, you, you, gotta, you gotta be very careful when you say yes, dear, because if you don't have the right intonation, you get slugged. Well, so she's laughing. She's laughing because you know what I mean. You practice saying yes, dear, in the car by yourself till you get it right. I don't practice. You don't practice? Oh, you don't. You've got it down pat, haven't you? So I turned to the owner of the bed and breakfast and I said, look, when you've got nothing to do, you look at real estate. Can you make an appointment for us? So we had an appointment the next day with a real estate agent and at 11 o'clock in the morning we walked into a house three, uh, a three bedroom a, a five a large house on, on three acres um, and it was only well in those days the Australian the, the Australian dollar was worth 55 cents US so when they said they wanted 300000 That was only $155,000 U.S. And I said, I think that's quite good. So I, I asked the real estate agent if they would take a check, and she said yes. I said, subject to a visa. So I wrote out a check as a deposit, and I walked out, and I said to my friend Ken, 
I said, I just bought a house subject to a visa. Now I'll need to see if I can register to practice. Well, there you go. We're halfway through the little interview we had with James. And James likes to talk. And um, I think we could have gone for many hours with the interview with James. But I just wanted to pause for a little bit to... um, Give our little podcast a plug. So vetgurus.com is a place to go and you can look at the show notes there, um, including this episode. And um, we do like our supporters, including specialised animal nutrition, also chemical essentials. And if you want to help us support the podcast um, to throw us a dollar or two, um, just go to our website vetgurus.com and there's various options there of supporting us. The main one is patreon.com link, which you can do a monthly payment to help pay for all our um, hosting um, costs, etc. And it could be $1 a month. It could be $100 a month if you want. And you don't have to do it every month, even though at Patreon it says join up for a monthly contribution. Um, We have a fair number of people who just want to contribute once off, so you can just contribute for one month and then easily easily cancel um, after that. But we'd like you to keep contributing to help, help keep us on the air. So enough of me and enough of vet guru's um, promotion let's get back to the rest of the interview with james harris we called the registrar and he said tell me what are your what are your credentials and i said well i practiced for 40 years in california blah 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 and he said yes um you need to send in a check for 165 dollars and a letter of good standing and we'll register you so then I said to Ken, now I need a visa and I've got to buy a house and I, I, I need to buy a practice. So Ken said, Don't, no worries, I'll call my attorney in Sydney. So he called his attorney in Sydney and the attorney said, I don't do visas, I don't do immigration, but I have a colleague who does. So we had an appointment with that chap and Ken then called a classmate of his who was a practice broker, and the, the, his bloke said, I've got two practices for, uh, coming up for sale in Hobart. I said, good. He said, let me have your email address, and I'll email you as soon as they come on the market. We, so finally, on the 20th of September, we got back to the United States with a, with a visit to Sydney and an appointment with the immigration officer agent and he said oh i think a business visa will be the best one for you and it's 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 good for four years and renewable every two years as long as you have so many employees and if your gross income is so much and i said oh that that's fine with the the practice broker came by and I went and looked, oh, I know. So we got back to the United States and three weeks later, he emailed me and he said, I've got practices for sale now. So I booked a flight back to Tobot, bought the practice I now have, um, put, up, put my practice up for sale. Um, I, never, I never advertised it. I just, I told the next drug rep that came in the door and he proceeded to tell everybody in town and I started getting phone calls. People were interested. And I, I had somebody appraise the practice. And I told everybody, I said, look, when my visa comes through, I'll give you one week to make an offer. Here's an appraisal of the practice. The, first, the middle of January, 
the visa came through, which is no longer available, by the way. But if you had that visa, you could apply for permanent residency, which we did. And then after two years, we applied for citizenship. So I now have Australian citizenship. Anyway, so the f- of the five people that, had, that were interested, four made offers. I didn't take the best offer because 75% of the staff said they'd leave the practice if I sold it to that person. And I, and I, I didn't want to do that. So I took le- less money and sold it to somebody who took good care of the practice. And, and some of the employees are still there after 16 years. And, um, and so we were talking before a little bit about um, uh, practice philosophy and, and you've already you know, mentioned some of the, well, to, I don't want to be, you know, uh, but they're innovative. You set up certain innovations. You set the scene for certain things. Um, but there were some things we were talking about, um, uh, like um, bereavement, the role of bereavement in veterinary practice. That's been something that you've seen that's changed, that's developed over the years? Yes. Well, what I realised very early on in my professional career, since I've been practising 60 years now, God help me, um, well, it's not work, you see. It's a, it's a ministry. It's a calling. And you don't stop doing it. You don't stop doing it at 5 o'clock, three days a week. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You never stop being a veterinarian. At least that's what I understand. Um, what I realized early on was that only 10% of what we do is animal business. 90% of what we do is people business. And you can't really separate the animal from the family or from the client. It's, it's a unit. It's a whole unit that you care for. And, and how the animal is, what the animal shows, the pathology within the animal has some effect on the family. And you're not just treating the animal, you're not just correcting the pathology, you're caring for the whole family unit. Because in essence, we are not animal doctors, we're family practitioners, we care for families. And I think that that's the big tragedy in veterinary education. There's very little, if any, orientation or training of the people business. It's all about identifying pathology, removing it from a patient, massaging the pathology and putting it back in the patient. What about the, the, what about the patient? Or more important, what about the family unit that the patient exists in? I think that's really the important part. I think the success of a veterinary practice, the success of a veterinarian, is the interaction and relationship they have with their clients. Um, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you care about the people and show it, they would become very loyal, good clients. It is, it is, a, it is a, um, uh, a triangle, isn't it? It's, it's not just animals and 
us as the veterinarians who look after them. It, the client is a critical part of that triangle. And, and any um, veterinarian who uh, um, does credit to our profession um, takes into account that triangle. They take the, the animal and they look at it in the context of the, the family, the, the, the uh, caregiver. Um, that relationship is critical. And there are some animals, Brendan and I have talked about it before, who, um, who would have an illness um, and it wouldn't be appropriate to treat them because of the circumstance. It would be a, it's going to cause them more suffering. Um, the same disease in another animal in a different family would be entirely reasonable to treat. So, Well, I, I, as I told you before, many years ago I was invited to the Animal Medical Center in New York City to do a evening seminar. And I walked into the room at quarter to seven after they had done rounds. And on the, on the blackboard in the front of the room was written, boxer, spade female, eight years old, chronic cough. And they were going to erase it. And I said, don't erase that. There's my lecture for tonight. So they left it. And everybody came back in the room after their coffee break or emptying their bladders or whatever they did. And I said, what's missing? And they looked at me and they went, no, nothing's missing. And I said, yes, I said, okay. I said, the boxer had congestive heart failure and you treated the heart failure, right? And the coughing stopped, right? They said, that's it, good. I said, no. I said, did the dog come in by itself? I said, the other half of the history is missing. Who brought the dog in? Tell me about their family. I said, I'm going to make it up. I said, two adults, husband and wife, two children. I said, now here's the scenario. The boxer dog sleeps in the bedroom of the parents. The husband's not getting any sleep because the dog's coughing all night. Normally, the father is very nice to their children. He's not getting any sleep. He's getting real pissy with the kids. I said, so we have a pathology in a family, and it's become dysfunctional. The family itself has become dysfunctional. I said, now, you as veterinarians diagnose congestive heart failure. Fine. You put the dog on medication, on a diuretic and on cardiac drugs, and the coughing stops. The father is now getting sleep. He's now nice to the children again. I said, you have done more than just treat a, a dog in congestive heart failure. You have taken a dysfunctional family and made them functional again. That's the big picture. Because I said, we're not just animal doctors, we're family practitioners. And they all looked at me like I had just come down from the mountain with the tablets of the Lord. And I said, and they said, oh, that's right. Why don't we ever, why don't they ever teach us this? And I said, that's the shortcoming of veterinary education. Now, one last thing I've got to ask you before we finish up, James. Um, I've noticed that at, um, regularly at the conferences we go to, um, you're, you're relatively easily drawn into singing. You're, 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 uh, have you always sung? Yes. <laughs> um, for when I, when I had a, 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 
a midlife crisis. I found one of my clients was a voice coach and teacher, and I asked him if he take would he take me on as a as a student, and he said, "Well, come. You have to come for a, a an audition." So I went to his house one day, and I had an audition, and halfway through the audition, I said. How am I doing? He said, oh, you're having your first lesson. <laughs> and so I, I've always sung, and I ended up being the first tenor at a Unitarian, at the Unitarian Church in Oakland for about 12 years. Yeah, I, uh, music has always been of, of interest to me, um, particularly classic music and opera. Um, I don't find contemporary music very interesting, uh, frankly. Well, it's always a highlight. Every time we are able to encourage you to um, uh, open those bellows of lungs that you have and let rip, it's a highlight of the conference for me. Well, thank so you very much. And James, I, I do want to ask one more question, Mark, before we finish. And that's that's we're we're very proud to have you down here in Australia, and we we count you as one of our own down here, James. And I'd just like you to explain about one particular award that you received a few years ago, and I think you know the one you're talking about, a particular Australian award, and um, if you've got any... Um, you mean a the, little late, the, the Order, Order, of, Order of Australia, Australia medal? medal. Um, so were you surprised about receiving this, or did you shocked. have... And, and 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 we're so proud that you did receive it, and, and it's well-deserved, but... Um, do you have a little story to talk about that particular award and what was it for? What was it well, on it was the certificate? For my service, it was for my service to the veterinary profession and to wildlife because one of the interests that I've always had is treating wildlife and of course, who pays the bill? Well, I always, I always laugh and I say, well, God pays the bill uh, um, if there is such a thing. Um, it, it's. It, I think physicians are licensed only to practice on one species. We get all the others. So then the question is, if if a Martian comes down to Earth, if an extraterrestrial comes down to Earth, who's going to treat it? I think veterinarians are going to treat it because it's not a human. And and when you think about it right now. I think if you take all the veterinarians in the world and divide up all the mammals, I think every veterinarian gets six, 17 or 18, <laughs> which is pretty good, I think. I think we're very fortunate that we have this great privilege of being able to care for all of these other creatures that we share this planet with. Um, I, uh, when you think about it, what are the two most important things that we as veterinarians do? We are responsible for a safe, nutritious food supply and public health. I mean, the pet, the pet business is really a very small part of what we do. For those of us doing it, I think it's, it's very important. For the clients that we serve and the animals that we treat and hopefully cure, that's very important. 
but in the great scheme of things, it's really a very small part of what our profession is about. And that needs to be put in perspective. And I think that we all should be involved with a certain, well, we are involved in public health. Those of us in companion animal practice, particularly in avian practice, think of the zoonotic diseases that we have to monitor and watch for. We are, we are the gatekeepers of not only human health, but we're the gatekeepers of human mental health. And that's something that, that we don't think about very often, but we should. And ideally, and I know that some veterinary schools now have a social worker on staff, on faculty, um, I think that there should be more sociology, abnormal psychology taught at veterinary school so that we are more trained as a profession to help people. Cause and not just help our clients, but help ourselves. That's right, yes. It's a, we have a very stressful life when you think about it. Long hours, uh, very frustrating. Uh, half the time we are, are not quite sure about what's going on, what we do with our patients. Um, it's, it can be, if you think about it, it's very frustrating. And, gee, you know the definition of an adult, somebody who's allowed to fail. Um, and we often fail, and it's okay. And you know, when you think about it, when clients ask you questions, it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know, but... I'll see if what I can find out and research it and then get back to the client and, and learn something yourself. Was it that, going back to that uh, Order of Australia medal, there was some particular, there was, uh, um, some particular wildlife work you did? The, was, am I mistaken in remembering I that? I don't or? think so. I don't think so. I, just general wildlife work. Um, we, the practice... The practice has always accepted wildlife, and and um, when I first started doing that here, um, every case every case had a report, and the reports were turned into the government, to the local government every year, every month. Now we are a monitoring practice for Wildlife Health Australia. And uh, so we we, set, we file a report with them every month. Also, the the whole process involves looking for introduced exotic diseases, and wildlife are certainly a an issue because a, an introduced wildlife disease that gets into the agricultural milieu can be very devastating. So, did you travel to Canberra, our capital territory, to receive that award? And no, they, no, not at all. Um, I, it was just announced to me. It was my, it was a shock. And where are the medal? Where is the medal now? At home in my office. <laughs> Well, James, it's been fantastic chatting to you. And I know we'll, we'll, we, we could continue all night, and we probably will after we stop this recording, but um, it's wonderful to, to spend a little time with you and, and learn a little bit about 
about your journey here to um, Australia and to um, Tasmania. And as I said, well, you know something, life is like a train ride. You have two options when you get on a train. You can sit there impatiently, stamping your feet, waiting to get to the last station, or you can talk to the passengers. You can look out the windows. You can you can get to a stop where you can train change trains. You get off, you get your suitcase, you get off one train, you get another train and go in a different direction. I think I've been tra- I've been switching trains for most of my life. And I think James, I, I think it, um, that that um, message is one that um, comes across when I talk to you. I think it is about enjoying the journey. It's not where you're going to end up and your trip around the world and the things that you've done is a prime example of that enjoyment of the journey. Thank you very much. Yes, it is. Thanks, James. And you're a good conductor. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, James. Well, there you have it. That was our interview with James Harris, a legendary Tasmanian. We're very privileged to have him here in Australia and also to to be able to say he's a a very good friend, Mark. Isn't that so? It is a a wonderful thing to have um, friends and mentors like that, Brendan. And there's two things about when we're listening to James at the time, there were two things that stood out to me. The first one is I'm amazed that he can remember the name of all his pets throughout his life. I'm struggling to remember ones I had only a year or two ago. And um, yes, his, um, his, you know, you started this uh, uh, podcast uh, with the title Curmudgeon, and I know he can cut to the, the chase with um, with his comments, but, geez, he... Uh, his um, passion and um, uh, the way that he holds our profession in such a high esteem and he leads it to that place by his own actions, um, their um, characteristics I think we can all look up to, Brendan. And I think, gee, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be wrapped if I was that sharp um, when I get to his age and um, he still loves, as, and it comes through with the interview, his, the veterinary profession and, um, yeah, fantastic man and um, a fantastic representative for the veterinary industry. So thank you for listening and um, we will talk to you all next week and we'll have another special coming soon. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time